Welcome to The Creator's Adventure, where we interview creators from around the world hearing their stories about growing a business. Today, we're talking about how to become a better communicator, whether it's public speaking or simply communicating with those that you care about. Brendan Kumar Sami is going to teach us how we can become better at communicating. So let's get into the show. Hey everyone, we're here today with Brendan Kumarasamy. He is the founder of Master Talk, and he coaches ambitious executives and entrepreneurs to become top 1% communicators in their industry. He also has a popular YouTube channel called Master Talk with the goal of providing free access to communication tools for everyone in the world. Brendan, welcome to the show. Brian, the pleasure is absolutely mine. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So my first question for you is, what would you say is the biggest thing that either you did or you are doing that has helped you achieve the freedom to do what you enjoy? For sure, Brian. I, I think for me, when it comes to freedom, which is very different from content creation, I would say it's one product to one audience through one distribution channel. I think with a lot of entrepreneurs and the reason they're still stuck in their nine to fives or they run unsuccessful businesses is they spread themselves too thin. I think the biggest mistake is they try and do multiple businesses and ideas at once versus trying to make one thing work at a big scale and then trying out other ideas. So if you're anything under a million, you should definitely just be doing one thing at a time. So I think what separated me from most of the industry, even if I'm still relatively young in my career, I'm currently 26, is I've been in the same industry for seven years. It's just at the beginning, it wasn't really a business, right? I was just making videos on communication for fun, just for the other college kids that I used to go to school with. And then that later evolved into executives and CEO clientele. But I always stayed in that niche. I never woke up one day and said, you know what? I should make videos on like how to bake a cake, right? You know, I stayed focused on that one thing. And I sell one thing to one avatar through one distribution channel. I think that's why we've been able to be successful really rapidly. And that's what I recommend most people do if they want to have freedom. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper into that, actually, because I feel like other... I've heard this advice before and... So what about, I, I, would, I would guess I would say two things. So I agree, first of all. And I think, um, yeah, if you're, if you're under a million dollars in revenue, the way to say like, well, I want to earn more, my, my way to get to a million dollars, most likely it's going to be easier to just focus on that thing that you're doing rather than try to do a new thing, uh, definitely. Um, but what would you say about like the idea that when somebody's like just starting out, and they're trying to balance not spreading themselves too thin, but also trying to figure out like what is it the thing that they really want to focus on. So at, at what level is it okay to say like I want to try these this many things or or something like that before deciding that focus? Uh, absolutely. Great question, Brian. So it's wide to thin, right? So in the sense of if you're not sure what the business is, then for sure, try 10 to 15 different ideas. And ultimately, your decision to figure out which one is the best one is ultimately the one where your customers get the most results and what's driving most of the revenue. So for example, I'll, I'll give you one which is a niche within a niche, which is you know, trying to make my name as a speaking professional, trying to get speaking gigs and trying to make money that way. 
that's good, but that income is really seasonal. Sometimes, Brian, you get the business. Sometimes you don't. It's not super consistent revenue. So yeah, it's probably 10% of the money I make in a year, but it's really hard to consistently make money because there's a lot of event planners and it's really competitive. Versus coaching clients is actually a lot less competitive because there's not that many communication coaches out there who are really good word of mouth spreads faster and it's a lot easier to get the sale because you're selling one person not an organization so notice how just within that one business there's different directions that you can go into so i would say the first piece is going okay out of all of the 10 things I could be doing, let's say baking cupcakes, coaching people on speaking, uh, you know, starting a gym, you look at those 10 things and you just ask yourself a few questions. One, what is the skill that I'm the most excited about, that I love to deliver consistently to people? That's the most important metric. And the other two things I would look at is the second, are you willing to do it for a decade? with the same level of energy that you started it with. And then the third piece, which is more of a sub issue, because you can make money a million different ways, but I think it's something to consider and ponder, which is simply OVs, right? Opportunity vehicles. But Warren Buffett always says, it's not about how hard you row relative to the actual boat that you're in. So of course, if you're in technology sales, it's a lot easier for you to make a lot more money because the opportunity vehicle, the market is a lot bigger. So if you're really debating between two ideas and you're, bo you're, the, you're both really, really good at them and you're not sure which one to pick and you're really passionate about them, then go through opportunity vehicles. But I think for most of the time, it's going to be pretty obvious what you want to do for the next 10 years if you experiment long enough. Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. All right. So I want to ask you, were you always, do you feel you were always good at communicating? And can you share a little bit of your background story and how you became a communication coach? For sure, Brian. So the answer is absolutely not. I grew up in a city called Montreal in Canada, where I still live. And for those who don't know, Montreal is a city where you need to know how to speak French, which is a language I did not know. So my whole life, Brian, not only did I struggle with communication, I had to present in a language I didn't even know. And so I'd look at the crowd and go, uh, bonjour. And that was my life as a kid. The second challenge is I have a crooked left arm because of a surgery I had when I was younger. And I, it's still crooked to this day. So I had a lot of anxiety because people would always look at my arm whenever I would give presentations. And it would always cause me anxiety. And the third piece is you would think that a communication expert studied comms. Yeah, I got a bachelor's degree in accounting. So definitely not the most suited to be a communication coach. So what happened was this all was an accident. I never wanted to be a business owner, Brian. My goal is to be a consultant at IBM, to work at an accounting firm like PricewaterhouseCoopers or Deloitte. So I went to business school in accounting, which I graduated in, by the way. So I literally have a degree in accounting. But in college, I competed in case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age are playing football or baseball, Brian, I was one of those guys, I did presentations competitively, and that's how I learned how to speak. But then as I got older, I started coaching a lot of the students on how to communicate, mostly to help them win competitions, and it gave me the idea for Master Talk because I realized that everything that I was sharing with them wasn't really available for free on the internet, and here we are a few years later. Awesome. All right. So, and like one of the things you're becoming this expert in is the, the public speaking. And 
many people are completely terrified of the idea of speaking in front of an audience. And you mentioned yourself of having this discomfort and, and self-doubts and all kinds of things. So what can somebody do to kind of get rid of that fear? For sure, Brian. Here, here's what I would start with, which is the fear is never going to go away. There's always some level of anxiety that all of us will have. It's just at different levels. Let me give you an example. Let's say me and you are having lunch and Elon Musk calls me and he goes, hey, Brent, I really liked your episode with Brian. I like your YouTube channel. Can you coach me? I'll pay you $3 million. Would I be anxious? Would I be stressed out? Yeah, I would be because it's Elon Musk. Of course I would be. And that's really the point I want to drive, Brian, is there's always a level in which we're all scared. So for me, it's not really something we need to try and remove, but rather a relationship we need to learn how to manage. So let me give you an example. I call this the boxing match analogy. Let's say one side of the ring is our fear, the anxiety, the stress that comes with speaking, and the other side of the ring is our message. Why is this important to share? Why does this matter to other people? The goal, my friend, is not to remove the fear, but rather make sure that when your message and your fear meet in the middle of that boxing match, that your message gets the knockout punch and wins the bloody match. And if you think of it like that, you'll always be more successful. In the same way, by the way, I had every excuse not to start Master Talk. I was a 22-year-old kid when I started making videos in my mom's basement with no money, no clients. I didn't even know you get paid to be a coach. I was just making videos to help people. But the reason I started making videos was for the seven-year-old girl who couldn't afford a communication coach. And that's still my North Star. So even if I wasn't the best in the world, and I'm still not the best in the world, I still have a long ways to go, I was definitely good enough to serve that seven-year-old girl in a way other people couldn't. Awesome. Yeah, I love that analogy. Um, so like, I, I feel like I've battled that a little bit myself. And I didn't think of it quite that way, but I like that because for me, like... Um, I wouldn't call it like an anxiety even at this point really or anything, but I don't feel like I, I love to just turn on the camera and record myself. It's not like the thing that I enjoy doing compared to the rest of my work, but I had that same feeling, I guess, where the message won the fight, right? So I realized I care too much about this message and about this passion and spreading that. And I feel like it's my duty to communicate that and teach others. Otherwise, I'm what am I doing? So I felt I need to do that. It's, it's not about do I feel like wanting to do that? Do I feel comfortable doing it? It's that I need to do that. And so the message won. And I relate to that also because when I was in high school, I was in a, uh, a rock band. I had a band. And I thought to myself, mm -hmm. what was interesting is I actually wasn't nervous on stage if I was performing. I actually, I was in choir at the same time, uh, like in high school. And I was nervous if I had to uh, do like a, a singing exam or something in choir with just the teacher who I personally knew, but to go and sing in front of a couple hundred people, no problem. And I realized that for myself, the issue was that uh, when I felt like I was being judged in some way, that's when I felt anxious about it. And I didn't feel that sense of judgment in the, the band setting. And I'm talking about the story now because it made me think that I think that's kind of the same thing with the message like you're describing, where the message won. Because when I was playing my music, that's what I cared about the most. I didn't care what anybody thought about me because I just wanted to play the music. And so I, I think that's a, a really great example of uh, making sure that if the, the fear and the message get in the ring, make sure the message wins.
Thanks, Brian. I love that band story. It's great. Awesome. So what would you say are the main components of a great speech? Yeah, I would say for me, Brian, a good way of thinking about this to keep it really simple today is one, the puzzle method. So for me, communication is like a jigsaw puzzle. You know those toys we used to play as kids growing up as, you know, as children? A lot of us, when we work on a jigsaw puzzle, we often start with the edges first. And the reason is because they're easier to find in the box. They're easier to put together. You just take the corners, put them all, and then you work your way into the middle. So why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because in presentations, we generally, unfortunately, do the opposite. We start with the middle first. We shove a bunch of content in our presentations. We get to the presentation. It sounds something like this. Uh, yeah, so, um, thanks. So not that great. So instead, what we want to do is practice like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges first. The next time you're preparing a speech, just focus on presenting the speech intro 25 times. 25 seems like a big number, but it really isn't, Brian, because your introduction is like two minutes max. So your introduction is like 50 minutes at the very most. That's how much time it'll take you to practice it 25 times, so like an hour. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie. Same thing for the close. Then work your way into the middle. And the middle, to not overcomplicate things today, is simply what's the key idea? What's the main point? If somebody can only get one sentence from your entire speech, what do you want it to be? And then the last piece to that is three to defend. What are three anecdotes, analogies, stories, statistics? Any three things that you feel helps defend your key idea the most. So let's say as an example, my key idea might be how do you get how do you convince every human being that they can be an exceptional communicator? That's what I believe. So then what are the three tools and strategies? One, I'll use a personal story. You know, I grew up in Montreal. I struggle with communication, which is all true. So personal story to hook people in. The second idea is tips that are so simple that it's impossible for you not to, not to implement them. Like it's so simple that a monkey can do it, right? So anyone could do it. And then the third piece is showing them results, showing the momentum of those strategies, how simple they are, how they can integrate, how they can make sure to create accountability in their life so they don't miss the ball on those tips. So it's just an example of how you can apply that speech framework. Yeah, I really like that. Um, that that's a really great point that like the intro is important because this is the first impression that is going, going to make a difference of if people decide that they they want to listen to the rest or, or how they're going to, to judge you about the rest. And if you mess up the ending, then that's the, that's the last moment that's going to be in everybody's mind. So you want to get that right. And then you can fill in the rest. I like that. Um, and the, the points about the middle are good too. So let's say that a creator is giving a speech and they realize somewhere along the way that they're losing the, the audience's interest, right? What can they do to kind of recover that as they're speaking? So for me, the perspective I always take with that, Brian, is A, take the loss, right? You, we, and the reason I say take the loss is because there's a bigger issue than that specific scenario you described, which is, what's my prep work like prior to the presentation? How do I make sure that when I get on the stage and it counts, that it's impossible for me to fail? Or the likelihood of that happening, minus a few extreme cases, is very, very small. 
Let me give you an example of this podcast. The reason why I'm not super stressed about any questions a host can ask me isn't because Brendan's special or unique, any of that stuff. I just practice an exercise I teach called the question drill, which is every single day for five minutes, Brian, you ask yourself one question for five minutes about your area of expertise. So day one is... How do you overcome your fear of communication? Day two is what tips do you have for introverts? Day three is how do you improve eye contact with the camera lens? But if you do that every day, Brian, for five minutes, for a year, you'll have answered 365 questions about your industry. You'll be unbeatable. You'll be bulletproof. So it's the same thing going back to the analogy, the example you gave. So what I would do to prevent that situation from even happening in the first place is you want to split test your presentation with the smaller sample size. Meaning, if you have an audience of 50 people, just practice with your brother. Practice with like five people that you know and pressure test the presentation before you get there. So they'll point out all the holes so that there's no holes in the in the real thing. Yeah, that's great. And I think most likely... Like you as the creator, as the speaker, the presenter, you're going to be able to pick up on those small things of if somebody's losing interest or if, if you didn't deliver something quite the way that you wanted to, whereas they might not even notice it. But just the fact of practicing it in front of those couple people will kind of inform you about that better. Absolutely. Cool. So nowadays, most businesses are in some way moving online if they haven't already. And a lot of public speaking has changed into speaking into like a camera like this. So whether it's a live recording or not, um, in terms of the technique, what would you say is the difference in training to speak to an audience in person versus training to speak in front of a camera? For sure. Great question, Brian. So I'd say it's three main differences. The first one is eye contact. So with eye contact, when you're in person, you always want to move your head around based on the person you're communicating with so you can look them in the eye. But when you're online, whether you're speaking to one or 10,000 people, you're actually only supposed to look at one area, which is the camera lens. So you give the illusion that you're looking at everyone directly in the eye. So that's number one. The second one is energy. Let's face it, Brian. It's a lot easier to show up with energy when you're in person because you can hug people, you can give them high fives, you can throw them in the air. So it's a lot more, you're held a lot more accountable to a higher standard because you have to shower. You have to dress well. You have to put deodorant on. So when you get there, you have a higher level of commitment for the audience that you just don't have when you're online. Like even now, as the expert, I'm wearing pajamas, you know? It's just people don't see it because it's just top. You just see the top. So that's the point. It's just even if you're a tryhard, even if you're committed, you still you still don't have that same level of accountability. Meaning, get better in person. Bring more energy in person and transfer as much of that as possible back into the online setting. Sending video messages to people that you love just on their birthday or just to appreciate having them in your life is also a great way to consistently practice energy. Third piece, accessibility. If I'm in front of you and I'm giving a presentation and I say, Brian, I want your feedback. How can I do better? You're right in front of me. There's no friction. You'll just go, oh, let's go have lunch over here. Let me give you a few pointers that I think you could work on, Brendan. So there's no friction there. But when you're online, Brian, it's really difficult 
to get people engaged into what you're saying and to get their feedback because the second the Zoom call, the Riverside, the Squadcast, the anything ends, the whole every the whole audience just disappears. So you need to make an extra effort. You need to get on calls with people, build relationships, so you get the feedback you need to get better. Yeah. All right. Great advice. Yeah, I think um, feedback is super important, and it's interesting to to talk about it from. I guess I'm so used to in, in my work hearing about it in the sense of product feedback and uh, doing research calls, discovery calls with customers, things like that. But also how important it is to do with content and. Yeah, you have your uh, your comments. Maybe you can go and look into. Um, but w- the way I like to think of it, not not just for content, but for any kind of feedback, is usually there's some amount of truth in what the person has to say, or or in most cases even they're just usually right. And what I mean by that is I think there's a lot of times when you look at some kind of feedback, somebody tells you something, you read something, and you think I'm not really sure about that. That doesn't that doesn't really match my style, my vision, whatever it is, in most cases, there's some amount of truth to that. And a lot of other people would have the same feedback that they do. And so I think uh, if, if you get that feedback, my, my piece of advice to add to that would be to really listen to it and let your ego go to the side a little bit um, to think about, well, even if you thought something was really right, well, what, what could be truthful about what they really had to say? Well said. I love that. Thanks. So a lot of our audience is composed of these independent entrepreneurs, course creators, coaches, consultants. And since you're a successful coach and online educator, can you share some advice for creators on how they can improve maybe their students' experience in their courses, for example, um, by improving the content, maybe the way they structure their, their videos or their presentations? Yeah, for sure, Brian. I would say for me, a lot of it is tactical, but I would say the principle that works the most is get your clients to improve the student experience. I'll give you an example. When I did my fifth cohort, we're we're starting our 10th one in a few weeks, so I've made a lot of mistakes from the first one to the 10th cohort. I would say the biggest idea I got was in cohort five. So how how our programs work is we pair up people. It's like a buddy system so they can all meet each other and work together, let's say on a speech or an exercise. But what I hadn't thought of was I only gave them each one buddy. But the challenge that that model had that my clients told me later was that if one of them is sick or doesn't do the program or finish, they don't have a buddy anymore. So I didn't know what to do. And then a few of the students kind of just created an experience on their own. They just started pairing up with each other. So I was just asking them, how did you get results so quickly? And let's say Tina or Gamaria would say like, oh, I just paired up with a lot more than the partners you assigned to me. Mm. I was like, that's so great. So then in cohort six, all the way to what we do now, we actually get the client to choose how many buddies they want. They can pick any amount of people they want. So some people ask for like seven buddies. So now we have like a system in the back end that allows for that pairing to happen versus if somebody picks seven or one. But the idea, the principle I want to share, Brian, is not really that people should have multiple accountability buddies. It works really well for the transformation that we're delivering our clients. But I think for the people listening to this, the advice would be listen 
to your customers, ask the right questions. Like if you had to change one thing about the program, what would you change and why? And always ask yourself, what is one idea that I can implement from every group that I start from at least one of the students? A couple of other principles that have worked as well that I like as a frame that I teach people is make the first class worth the investment. What does that mean? Let's say you got a 12-week program. Okay. I'm a lot better at live, so I don't have a lot of recorded content in the stuff that I deliver. But let's say 12-week process. And the investment, let's say, is $3,000 to be a part of that experience, as an example. The frame that I, I always like to think about is how do I make each class worth the entire investment of the program so they get $3,000 worth of transformation from the first second they enter the experience. So that way, the program is worth $36,000 if you have $3,000 of value. So the question you need to ask yourself for each class is what what is the $3,000 insight? What is the $10,000 insight? What is the $1,000 insight from the 90 minutes that my client is investing here? And that really gets you to razor focus and honestly cut the stuff that isn't directly leading to results really quickly. One last question I'll add, which is a little bit controversial that I like to use, is how do I get my clients more addicted to my programs, almost like cocaine? And the reason I like that framework is because if you make your programs as addictive as cocaine, but in a good way, where the client is forced into the transformation, you come up with new creative ideas to really accelerate the student experience. I'll give you one example of that. All of the one-on-one -on -one calls with me and the, my programs are actually a secret. So I don't tell them that when I sell them the offer, but when they get into the program, they go like, what do you mean it's a secret? And I go, well, you have to book the call to find out. So it just creates more mystique and novelty in the transformation. That's it. Yeah, that's great advice. And I, I don't think it's really controversial at all. Um, like that's one of uh, the principles really that we kind of built heights on. Um, not the idea of like specifically saying, let's make it as addicting as cocaine, but let's make the, <laughs> let's make the student engagement as uh as addicting as possible in a good way because if you think about it like my thought was okay we have social media we have these video games where they have these experts in psychology thinking of how can we keep the person on the platform for the longest time possible and so my thinking was well why not apply those same principles but do it good for a good reason to help the person get a positive result in their life for something they're trying to learn or accomplish and so, yeah, that was exactly our thoughts. And, and I would say, like, I mean, we try to encourage creators to do that as well. Um, I'm curious, what do you think about some other ways that maybe you can make your content entertaining? Because what I think a lot of creators also struggle with is, on one hand, like, you're there to teach somebody your result. It doesn't have to be the most entertaining thing, but you want to have some amount of entertainment with it and making sure that you're being when you are giving the the steps that somebody has to go through that you're being concrete and direct enough that you're not just talking about all these other unnecessary things and because like for example we always tell everybody like it doesn't matter how much content is in your course it just matters that you get them to the result and you actually want the smallest amount of content to get them to that result rather than extra content because that's that's going to work against you it's going to be hard for people to to stay engaged with all that and I think we've had other creators that they gave the advice of saying like that you're the expert in your field, you're super passionate about your field. So like speaking or software or whatever it is, but the student you're teaching, maybe they're not quite there yet. They want to learn this thing, but maybe they're not quite there yet. So talking about all these, these buzzwords and the, these things that are really get into detail about what you know, it's maybe something that they're, they're not quite there with. So 
um, being simple and, and giving only the, the pieces of advice or tasks that somebody needs to accomplish and then trying to make that entertaining in a way so that they'll, they'll actually decide to keep moving forward rather than saying, I'm going to go watch Netflix. Um, so with all that said, what, what's another tip that you would say to kind of like keep people engaged? Because I'm curious what you have to say as someone who is, is a public speaker and, and focuses on uh, having to deal with that engagement and keep things entertaining. For sure, Brian. And it's still something I'm working on. I would say the, the, the principle is obsessive focus on the result. And and one frame that we look at all the time is a couple that we aren't the best at. We have to still keep working on. Attendance rate of classes is one KPI to track. Another KPI to track is how quickly is someone getting results in the program. So when I started batch one, it would take like four weeks. And now it takes like an hour. Right, so it went down really quick from like. But now the question is, how do I get it down to a minute? So I'm always, even if I I might not be able to, I like pushing myself because if I get it from four weeks to one hour, it's like okay, now we're really talking here, really getting results for people. So I would say the the main idea of how to get more results for clients goes back to that obsessive focus, but also go breaking down edutainment into education entertainment. I think the program development starts with education first, which is you kind of just botch a program, you create something that you feel will get results for people. And then every time you start a new batch, I always go back into the 12-week sequence, which is my entry-level product. And I go like, what can I swap out? What didn't people get results on? So specifically what I'm asking myself, Brian, to your point, is not did people get value from it? That's, I think, a dumb general question because what does value actually mean? I think the real question I'm asking myself is are people getting tangible results? And if so, what types of results are they getting? So I'll give you a simple one. Let's say we take the random word exercise, which is like the basic tip that's available on my YouTube channel. Pick a word like cup, like cell phone, like ceiling, and create random presentations out of thin air. Well, doing that exercise is really important for the people in our ecosystem because that's the first kind of pillar of the whole game. So if people don't do that exercise, they don't go anywhere, but they all say they love it and it gets them results because I know in my mind, now that I facilitate the transformation enough times, if somebody does the random exercise a hundred times and we create an accountability system to get them that result, their communication will will expedite really, really fast. So that's a, a super crucial component that will always stay in my entry-level product. Whereas there's other classes that are really interesting in nature. Like I used to have like an advanced relationship building course where I teach people how to shift energies from one environment to another. Sounds great on paper, but whenever I touch base with my clients two months later, pfft, they forgot the entire session. They don't apply it. So I think the, the, key, the key point here, to keep it simple, is what are the top 10 insights that you think clients will get 10x results from, from the investment? So for us, it's things like the random word exercise, the value list, PowerPoint karaoke, question drills, sending video messages. So those five insights alone are worth way more than the investment of the program. But it's not about sharing those insights. It's about making sure we create that platform to make sure people get the results and actually end up implementing them. One last thing I'll give on this, and I'll throw it back to you, is what I have found to be the most powerful psychological effect so far, because after split testing so many different things, FOMO is the biggest thing that gets people results. So I'll give you an example, Brian, that I think you'll find super fascinating, because there's not a lot of people who, have, who are doing this in the space, especially not in my space. 
is the reason we make the call secret, Brian, is really simple. So let's say executive one, let's call her Julie, gets on secret call one with me and she learns what it is. At the end of the call, what I have Julie do is I have her send a 45-second video message to the entire group just telling them what they thought of Secret Call 1. But that call is designed to blow people's minds. So when they send the video, they go, oh my god, Brendan's call, like this program is really good. And it's like, if you haven't booked this call, you're crazy. But hearing it from other peers, now everyone's feeling the FOMO. Like what what the hell is in this like first secret call so they all start booking it and a hundred percent of them always book the call yeah that's great advice i think uh i think a lot of people struggle with actually getting everybody to to book that call even though you're offering it uh as part of your course even though people are paying for it um so yeah that's a yeah great exactly <laughs> yeah and i agree the the fomo is really powerful um a really powerful motivator so like for us um i don't know if you're familiar with we have a challenge feature and the idea of that is similar to an online course, but unlike an online course, everybody's going through it at the same time. And so the lesson releases, instead of being dripped for based on when you signed up, it's that same calendar date for everybody. And then not only does the challenge have an end date, but the lessons themselves can also expire after a certain set number of days. And so unlike an online course where it's like, okay, I'll do it at my own pace, all that, the challenge, which works really well as kind of like the introductory product, gets you in there because you say, okay, I got to do this first lesson because this is when it's available and everybody else is doing it. And if I don't do it in three days, it's going to be locked and I'm going to miss it. And uh, having these kind of like bite-sized lessons in that challenge will really help people build a habit to get to the point that then when they're ready to buy your big flagship course, now they're, they have this habit of engagement and they're used to logging in saying, all right, I'm going to do today's video. I'm going to do today's task, whatever it is that they have to go through. And so, yeah, for us, we've seen that that's a really powerful way to keep people engaged. Love that really fascinating feature. Cool. All right. So I've got one final question for you. And on the show, we like to ask uh, each of our guests to ask a question to the audience. So if you could ask anything to our audience, something you're curious about, something you want them to think about, what would that be? For sure, Brian, I would say my question is, how would your life change if you became an exceptional communicator? A lot of this industry is so focused on the fear and the stress and the anxiety around speaking. Whereas for me, I, and I think I've, I've built the brand purely on this, is really the idea that, hey, wait a second, like communication like saves the world. It makes our life better. It's the way we talk to our families, the way we raise our children. It's the way that we make new friends. So let's embrace that. So I would encourage your audience to ask themselves that question. How would your life change? if you became an exceptional communicator? Because the answer to that question is what will ultimately push you to even do a lot of the exercises we talked about today. Awesome, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think you're completely right. Communication is so important. Um, that's, that's really, I, I feel like a lot of my work has, has either grown or, or required in some way to, to learn how to become better at communicating. Whether it was like starting as a, uh, a graphic designer and then a web designer, as a web designer, learning how to like communicate what the client wants to the software developer and be like the translator in between there and make sure everything's clear. So like it, it's not only business, but yeah, as you said, relationships, life, just everything opens up doors. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brendan. Before we get going, where else can people find you online? For sure, Brad. This is a great interview. Thanks for having me. Two ways to keep in touch. 
The first one is the YouTube channel. Just go to Master Talk in one word and you'll have access to hundreds of free videos on how to speak. And the second way to keep in touch is to attend one of my live communication trainings. I do a free one over Zoom every few weeks so people can see me apply a lot of the tips on a Zoom call live and in real time. So if you want to jump on that, go to rockstarcommunicator.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brendan. Pleasure was mine, Brian. If you enjoyed this interview and want a chance to ask questions to our guests live, tune in on Tuesdays when new episodes premiere on the Heist Platform Facebook page. To learn more about the show and get notified when new episodes release, check out thecreatorsadventure.com. Until then, keep learning, and I'll see you in the next episode.